James Carter is a poet who regularly works in schools. He's been a teacher and teacher educator. As well as collections of poetry, he's written creative writing resources which promote the use of music and imagery as a stimulus for writing. And today, James joins us in the reading corner to talk about his latest collection, Weird, Wild and Wonderful. Brilliant to have you with us in the reading corner today, James. Thank you for having me, Nikki. I'm, I'm honoured and delighted. <laughs> so Weird, Wild and Wonderful is a collection of previously published poems. Are there new poems in there as well? There's uh, eight new ones, and I even actually completely rewrote a very old one because the 59-year-old me looked at the river poem I wanted to put in there. I thought, I think I can do that better now. At least I should be able to do it better. So a couple of old ones have had a few tweaks and nips and tucks, and I'm I'm so fussy about words. And I think that's what poets are. We're uber fussy, and that's why we don't write novels, because we just want to concentrate on that, what Russell Hoban called the much in little. Mm. I wouldn't want to write a novel. It would take me five lifetimes. I would, you know, I, I'm happy to work on one poem all my life, in, in theory. I love that. You know, that idea, um, editing's great, isn't it? Ooh, and actually being able it. to go back to your work years later... Yeah. And refine it. Yeah. What? I'm obsessive. I'm showing you now a manuscript page. And this is a poem I thought I was going to scrap. It's the one in the book called Who Cares? And it's an, it's quite an angry eco poem, but said ironically. So who cares about the planet? There's other planets. And obviously I don't mean that. But it's one of those I thought, oh, I don't think it's working. And I worked it and worked it and printing it out, scratching it and scrabbling away. And then eventually National Poetry Day website took it. went, oh, OK. And then it went on a Radio 3 programme. And I'm like, oh, because you don't know what how the world's going to respond. The things I tend to like most of all often don't get published. And I think, oh, well, that's just one for me. Yeah. And, and I think also in terms of thinking about, we're going to talk about the book itself in a moment, but because you've mentioned there about going back and reworking, I think this is a really interesting point when we think about children's writing. Often it's done, it's finished, we're on to the next piece. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if they're given the opportunity to look back at what they wrote last week, last month, last year, two years ago, and well, work that, on it again. Well, that's an interesting point. You see, the thing is that I think that children and adults write in a very different way. Children write very quickly, very well. And quite often they won't want to go back because they can't see the point in it. They think, I've just written it. Why do I have to change it? Whereas us adults are so anxious about our writing, so self-conscious about our writing, we will want to tweak it until we think it's good enough and other people will get approval. Whereas children don't necessarily always write for approval. But I, I often find that in a workshop, what you need to do is get them to take that first draft. And ideally, it would be a week later because you because the best editor is time. We need time to see things more clean. Go, oh, that intro, that intro is not good. But the middle bit's diamond. That's really good there. Um, so often I'll go, Sophie, read me that bit again. You've just suddenly started rhyming halfway through. Why would you do that? She went, oh, yes, I have. <laughs> and I say, what happens if you took the rhyme out? Just try because the beginning is brilliant. Have a look at the middle bit. Take the rhyme off. And she goes, oh, it's even better. I go, yeah. <laughs> so what you have to do is not tell them, oh, you need to change that, but show them. You go, Sophie, try that. 
and, and everyone go, oh, Sophie, that's really good. And also you want that community of writers where everybody's improving everybody else. It's not, not it's like, oh, go away from my writing. It's more like, oh, could you look at this? Could you help me with this? Because I'm a bit stuck. Mm-hmm. So you need to show them the benefits of going back. If I ever see a poem on Twitter and somebody says, I just wrote this, I won't read it because I think you're killing the poem before you've had a chance to grow it. A poem needs three months of nurturing because as soon as you put it on the internet, everyone goes, oh, lovely, darling, well done. Well, actually, they might really be thinking "Mm, it's not her best or not his best, whereas I think actually for the poem to be the best it can be, you need to sit on it for a long time. So that's why I don't want to get involved with people's creativity because there might be a better version down the line. So time... Time yep. is the best editor. We'll we'll stick with that as an idea uh, for now. Now, this this book is organised into three very neatly for us into three sections. And uh, I wondered whether we could start with the section called Wild in here, hmm. which is is what's it about? What's the organising principle well, behind that section? I think it stems from the fact that as a child, I was obsessed with animals. And, and I was never very sciencey, but I loved biology. That was my favourite subject, not English. I wasn't good at English, uh, but I've always loved animals and wild things. And so even though my first few poems weren't about animals, it was more about whimsical things and a bit John Hegley-ish because I adore John Hegley and a bit, dare I say, Monty Python-ish because I love Monty Python. So it's always a little bit. But eventually, as I got going, my writing became more natural world and sciencey. Mm. Originally, the book, I wanted to call it The World of Weird. But since then, there have been lots of TV programmes called The World of Weird. So I thought I can't call it that. So my first collection was called Cars, Stars, Electric Guitars. And my wife said, why don't you put some different titles together? So I, I looked at different poems and I thought, well, it can't be World of Weird, but I could put Weird, Wild. There's a poem called Wild. And I thought it needs another work. So I I cheekily put the wonderful world of weird. So that would give me three sections and start with with weird, i.e. the funny poems, the daft ones, because children do read, I've discovered from the beginning, because they're used to reading a lot of narrative fiction, which is linear. And I thought, well, I don't want to put the quiet ones here. They might think it's all quiet poems. So deliberately, I put the more what I, not child-centred, but I thought I wanted the, the, the whimsical ones, very child-centred. So like, what did you do at school today? Very child-centred. What will I be when I grow up? Um, the truth about teddy bears. And then it goes into the serious ones. But the wild section is me writing about the natural world. But, but I'm personally interested in the relationship between the wild and the tame. The one poem that says that more than anything else is the poem in here based on the Aesop fable, and it's called Between the Dog and the Wolf. Now, Between the Dog and the Wolf is a French saying, entre le chien et le loup, and it means it means twilight, so uh, sunrise or sunset. And I thought that would be a good metaphor for this poem. So I took the Aesop fable and rewrote it. And basically you've got a dog talking to a wolf, but I embellished it and, and took it further. And so the wolf criticizes the dog for having a human name, for having a collar and derides the creature for selling out and not being wild anymore. And the dog says, yeah, but I can sleep in the warm. I get free meals. And the wolf says, Oh, <laughs> so that kind of, I love that discourse. I love that duplicity yeah. of wild and tame and yeah. 
But I think what's really inspired me in the last couple of decades is a musician called Sufjan Stevens. He said, I'm going to write an album about every American state. Now, he only did two because I think after a while he thought, I can't do this. This is too much work. And they were brilliant albums. But I thought, oh, I could do it. I could write a poem about everything. So I thought I could write a poem about trees. So I wrote a tree poem. It's in here. I could write one about clouds. And that's my thinking now. I want to write the best poem I can, my James Carter definitive poem about everything. And that's what I'm trying to do for the rest of my life. Well, it's funny because I, I did choose one which I, I was going to ask you to read. And I thought you might be interested in a little story as to why I chose uh, that poem out of all of them. It's anecdotal. And I have a very good friend who's a class teacher. Mm. And every year her class has to choose an animal that becomes their class animal for the year. And it's nearly always something fluffy. For five years now, I've been saying, when are you going to call your class dung beetles? That's our joke. And she says, well, we have to name them after some kind of quality that the animal has got, a really good positive quality, because that represents, you know, what the children are going to be for the year. Well, dung beetles are about the hardest working animals you could have. And and they're good recycling. They are. So perhaps we could hear your poem. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, for me, dung beetles are the way to go. They're scientists. They've worked out that they can get home by looking at the stars. They can move backwards. They can do lots of things that us humans can't do unless we invent machines. And I'm very interested in science and how nature has worked out science without thinking H2SO4 plus H2O equals this. They don't need to deconstruct it. They just do the science. And I love dung beetles. So this is a poem actually I wrote quite a long time ago, but I scrapped it because I just thought it wasn't right. And I came back to it and I added bits. I think it needed a bit more, a bit more whimsy. Okay. I'll tell you what we need, Nikki. I think we need a little bit of music. So we're going to have Steve. This is Steve, my uh, melodica. And we're going to have a little dung beetle introduction. The Elephant's Ode to the Dung Beetle. Oh, beetle, you're a star, you are. You brighten up my day. For if I ever do a dung, you roll the thing away. That's over hills and backwards too, and OMG, how skilled are you? Though some may say you're rather rude to steal another's poo for food. Well, I say blah, how wrong they are, for you're a cool recycling dude. (laughs) you've talked about your background in science there and uh more recently you've been producing like single uh pictures which are non-fiction poems they're absolutely brilliant once upon a star once upon a raindrop and the one about music is called once upon a rhythm once upon a rhythm that that was done by the birmingham city of birmingham symphony orchestra You see, the thing is that I do feel that I am a non-fiction poet. So sometimes I'm writing about love and that's a real thing. Sometimes I'm writing about dung beetles or wolves. And so I started writing non-fiction books for Big Cat. I rung them up once and said, can I write write a book for you? They said, yeah, what do you want to write about? So off the top of my head, I said, electric guitars, because I knew a bit about them. And they said, oh, we like that. Will you do another? And they said, what do you like to write about? So I went, uh, wolves. He went, oh, yes, please. 
And then I thought, I, actually, I want to write something in which not just facts, but it's it's got a story. I want to do narrative. So I wrote one about the moon, and innately it rhymed. And then I think, and, and then I thought, I need another one, so I do one about the sun. <laughs> And I like the fact that I'm the job of the storyteller there. I like the fact that I'm not thinking, what shall I write about, uh, dung beetles? I'm thinking, right, so what's the story of the sun? What's the story of the moon? And how can I tell it through simple but sciencey language? But I don't have to do too much esoteric language because in the back I have an acrostic in which I put some sciencey stuff and I talk about nebulas and this, you know, so I get a little bit more sciencey. But to be honest, you, Nikki, I'm not very good at science. I have to research it. So I come to science, these books with a sense of how can I make sense for this? A, for me as an adult and B, as a child. Now that's the wild section. It is. And Tell us about the section, the wonderful section. Does it have a defining? But it's it's quality? a bit it's a bit nebulous that one because it's a bit broad. So wild is animals and wild things. A wonderful is just feelings and a sense of wonder. So it's got a poem about a mum. It's got a poem about shooting stars. So it's the wonder of science, the awe of science. It's the ooh of science. But it's also got love poems and kindness and libraries. So it's the wooliest, so another W there, it's the wooliest, but hopefully there's a kind of ooh factor. That's what I was going for in the last poem. I tried to write this for a class I'd worked a lot with at Falkland Primary School in Newbury. I wanted to write them a goodbye poem and say, don't forget the past kind of thing. It's, it's still here. And I couldn't do it. But I had the bit about the moths. Do, do, do you want me to read it quickly? Yes, that'd be great. So how easily the present escapes into the past, like raindrops on a lake, like moths into the dark. That afternoon you learnt to swim. The night you tried to count the stars, ever passing through your hands, moments disappear like sand. So catch them, trap them, write them down, preserve them as your memories, turn them into words like these. And you wouldn't believe that a poem as simple as that took three years of ah, multiple versions. Do you know what I'd love to hear? I'd love to hear the poem about shooting stars. Now, can I just say, this was my first attempt ever at a non-rhyming poem. I'd written rhyming poems for about two years. And I thought, well, it'd be useful to have for one of my teacher's books, a poem that doesn't rhyme. And I thought, oh, I'd do a Michael Rosen and write about a memory, not in his style, but I'd just take a memory and I'll write it. So I just sat down and it was one of those rare poems that pretty much came out as it is now. But I think it's because it's a memory I wrote it as it was, and I managed to hone in on the little mini moment. The shooting stars. That night, we went out into the dark and saw the shooting stars. It was one of the best nights ever. It was as if someone was throwing paint across the universe. The stars just kept coming, and we oohed and aahed like on bonfire night. And it didn't matter, they weren't real stars, just bits of dust on fire burning up in the atmosphere. And we stayed out there for ages, standing on this tiny planet, staring up at the vast cosmos. And I shivered with the thrill of it all. Lovely. What was the memory? Well, you see, the thing is that this is what I say to children, that 
there's so much when you write a non-fiction poem a real poem so it's not made up it's not about a little baker skipping down the lane or whatever going over the hill it's not, it's not a fantasy you can't put in too much detail i can't say well i was 21 i was visiting my girlfriend's family in the west of wales they had a caravan on a farm and i got there at midnight that's irrelevant what you try to find is the nugget the little tiny kernel of a memory and just go into that because people won't be able to relate to the fact i was driving my car down the m4 that's and that's not interesting i just want to find the the universal thing that people can go oh we went outside we counted the stars we looked at so you innately try to find that thing the thing is that you don't always think very meta when you're writing you don't thinking i'm doing this because it's a logical thing and i want my i want the audience to get something emotional from this and i want them to get the imagery but i do think i do come back to poems quite often and think ah because it doesn't have an illustration then i've got to put something visual in and quite often i will put a word in just a simple word it could even be the dark or it might be the word silvery or crimson just so that there's a, a little bit from the mind's eye they can go oh i can picture that Anyway, we, we are going to talk about the, the third uh, section, weird, and in particular, because I remember this, I, I had car stars and electric guitars when I was teaching. That was a collection that I, <laughs> I used in the classroom. I want to talk, before we talk about the poem, I, I want to guitar. talk about what you love about guitars and guitar music. As I get older, the more I realise what guitars and all music does is, is it's, it goes to places that other things don't. For me, music is the greatest invention ever, and language is the, is the very close second. Mm -hmm. And it just brings out a different atmosphere every time, and it can be cheeky or it can be poignant. And, mm -hmm. and like in poetry, I want it to be cheeky, poignant, and all those different things. But another huge influence on me was Monty Python. Um, there was a cricket commentator called Brian Johnston, and his son sold me this record here, Monty Python's Flying Circus. And immediately my brain went, oh, things can be weird and funny. It didn't matter if you didn't understand it because it was interesting. It was different. But talking about the books, my biggest key influence poem wise as a teenager was Horace by Terry Jones from, from one of the Monty Python books. Much to his mum and dad's dismay, Horace ate himself one day. He didn't stop to say his grace. He just sat down and ate his face. Mm -hmm. And that rhythm and that bizarre surrealism has, has, had, has had a big time influence. I adore Terry Jones. I mm -hmm. miss him desperately. And you want me to talk about weird now, don't you? The first book of the book. So that's me trying to keep my reader. I don't want them to read the new David Williams. I don't want to read the new Michael Morpurgo. I want them to keep reading this. So I wanted to suck them in with the stupid ones, the funny ones, the ones that go, oh, yeah, my mum says that kind of poem. So that's why What Did You Do at School Today is the first poem in here because it's every child's experience. I used to say to my children, so what do you do at school today? Nothing. Because when you come out of school, you're so keen to get out of school and to go and have a biscuit and do or run around in the park. You don't want to say, well, actually, I did this, this and this. And and you often, I used to find that my children wouldn't say what, what they'd done until I was cooking them their tea. I'd just be getting something into the oven and they go, Dad, you know what happened today? We, ha we had a man with, with, with a falcon on it. And it's like, oh, could you go? I was like, you know, it's, it's that kind of adults and children on different wavelengths aren't they so I thought right in this poem I'm going to get the grown-up back and the fact is that 
do you know what, Nikki? I don't think grown-ups always listen to children. You know, mm-hmm. I just got so at the end it said, um, and I learned five very interesting things about the ancient Egyptians, including how they used to remove the brains of their dead with a mum. Do you ever listen to a single word I say? Oh, sorry, darling. What was that? I said I removed my teacher's brain today. What? Oh, well done, you. What do you want for tea? <laughs> it's, it's a it's a lovely, uh, well structured uh, poem, and that uh, Thank you. what's great about it is that we all recognise the truth in it. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to. I, I don't think I'm trying to find the truth. I'd rather just find a way into it, rather thinking that's a good idea because children like that. Write a poem about a funny. It's. I tend to more think, well, what would amuse me and hopefully amuse a child. But I do write very differently when I write for under sevens and over sevens. So for over sevens, I can write very freely. But when I write books like Zim Zam Zoom, I'm very consciously going down a narrower corridor where there is less language and there are less subject matters. But I love that challenge. Having read a lot of Alan Allberg to my daughters, I thought he's the governor. He's the greatest children's poet ever for me. I want to try and be 1% as good as him. So it's not that I'm writing in his style, but I'm thinking he can write exquisitely simply, but with such craft. It's all about the craft for me. I don't want to read a poem. I won't read The Gruffalo, sorry, Julia Donaldson, because it doesn't scan. And if something doesn't scan, I can't read it. She's a great writer, by the way, but I have to have something to scan where it's like listening to, let's say, if if Ringo wasn't a good timekeeper, it would be like, it'd be like a bumpy road, wouldn't it? You want it to be just so... James, I'm so sorry. We're coming to the end of our uh, time. But uh, what I do want to get in there is uh, something about your great resource for schools called Just Imagine, which has been reissued and is still available. So tell us a little bit about that. I did a B.Ed. to be an English specialist. And then I worked in a secondary school for a couple of years working with disabled pupils. I did a master's degree. And then I ended up, finished the master's degree with a couple of interviews I'd done with people like Alan Durant and Philip Pullman and things. And I sent that off. And an editor said, the wonderful Helen Fairley at Routledge said, oh, I'd like to publish this, but I want you to start again. So I did a whole book of interviews with children's writers for a whole year. I travelled the length and breadth of the country. I met Benjamin Zephaniah, Brian Moses, Jacqueline Wilson, all kinds of people. And I learned so much. So the first book was a book of interviews. And then Helen said, why don't you make it more teachery? The next one, give them some writing tips. So I interviewed Jacqueline Wilson, Michael Moore, Pergo, Walcott, David Almond, Mallory Blackman, all kinds of people. And that was creating writers. And the, the fourth one, I was working at Reading Uni as a lecturer by then in creative writing in the School of Education. And I thought what I'd like as a lecturer is a book with some music so I can put some music on that will hopefully inspire them and take the worry off and get into the zone with me but also some pictures as well some little story starter points some little things you could write a haiku or a synchrone or a free verse thing and then I got lots of postcards and illustrators I knew very kindly generously donated stuff and I got some themes with interview clips and that became just imagine good name by the way oh thank you (laughs) (laughs) and the nice thing is it is available still and there is an ebook Anyway, James, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. You've given us lots of food for thought Thank you, today. Nikki. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks, James. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. 
To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.